0: Father, we come now to your word. Lord, I pray that as I begin to preach, that you would lay bare our hearts before your word. Lord, that we would see ourselves in light of your word. Father, that we would rely on the Spirit to conform ourselves to your word. Father, I pray for anyone here who needs to hear this message. Particularly, I pray for anybody here who, Lord, needs to hear the gospel for the first time, or for the tenth time, or for the hundredth time. Father, that we would recognize that this is you speaking to us. Father, may you give us your spirit to respond to you in faith. Pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Going back to Galatians 2 again this morning. Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of the revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed to be influential the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom, that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield into submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship, to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Last week we looked at the first five verses of this of this text. Um, If you remember, what we're looking at here is a trip that Paul takes up to Jerusalem, and I said I believe that this corresponds with Acts 11, at the end of the chapter, in which Paul and Barnabas are taking an offering from the church up to Judea because of a revelation that had been set before them um, about a famine that was going to take place. And when he's on this trip, taking this offering up to the church of Jerusalem, he meets with the apostles and he places before them the gospel that he preaches to the Gentiles. And what I said last week was, I'm not sure that he's going to Jerusalem. I don't believe he went to Jerusalem to get their approval or to make sure that he had the right gospel. If you remember, I said through the entire first chapter of Galatians, Paul is already arguing he has the gospel. He says, I am not an apostle from men, but through Jesus Christ in verse 1 of chapter 1. He says there is only one gospel in chapter 1, verse 7, and that anyone who preaches a different gospel is cursed in chapter 9, or in verse 9. He's not trying to please men, but instead he is pleasing Jesus Christ in verse 10, and that the gospel he preaches is not man's gospel. It wasn't taught to him, but it was given to him as a revelation in in verse 10 and 11 and 12. I believe Paul takes this gospel that he's preaching and puts it in front of his apostles and these false brothers because he wants to see if they're going to hold firm, if they're going to confirm, if they're going to, in the face of this, in the face of these false brothers, if they're going to hold true to the word that they have been given as well. Or would they give in to these false brothers? If they give in to the demands of the false brothers that all Gentile believers need to be circumcised, it has the potential to undermine his ministry. It has the potential to undo everything he had already done. And that's why I believe Paul says here he is in fear that he had run or had been running in vain. So, what Paul does in verse 3 and what we see in verse 3 is that Paul takes Titus along with him. Now, Titus is a Gentile believer. So, he takes a Gentile believer, uncircumcised Gentile believer, with him into this meeting. And he places them in front of the apostles, he places him in front of the, the false brothers, and he says, this is the gospel I've received, this is the gospel you've received, what are we going to do about it? Are you going to force him to be circumcised because these guys are saying this? Or are you going to hold true to the word that you've got that I have? And what do they do? Thankfully for all of us, they hold true to the word that they received from Jesus Christ. They don't force Titus to be circumcised, thus confirming what Paul has been saying all along. So this, this whole encounter, this whole problem coming from these false brothers, I said, I believe is why Paul writes the letter and why he goes up to Jerusalem. He says in chapter, in verse 5, we did not yield in submission for a moment. Why? So the truth of the gospel could be preserved for you. That's the reason behind Paul's writing. That's the reason behind his journey to Jerusalem. So verses 1 through 5, we see this fight for freedom that I called it last week. Now this week in 6 through 10, I want us to see a gospel of unity. This fight was not only a fight for freedom, it was a fight for unity as well. See, if we give in, if if Paul gives in to these false brothers, you now have a divided Christianity, if you can call it that. You have the Jewish Christianity on one side where everybody says we have to be circumcised. And you have the true Christianity on the other side where it says, now the gospel completely destroys any ethnic barriers. It completely tears down all of the walls in the world that divide us. So if Paul loses this fight, if if God does not give these apostles the grace to stand firm in front of these false brothers, we do not have a united Christianity. In verses 6-10 through we see a gospel that shows no favorites in verse 6. We see a gospel that unites where the world divides in verses 7 through 9, and a gospel that has concern for the less fortunate in verse 10. So look at verse 6. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, for God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So Paul continues his report. He's saying that these apostles, they added nothing to me. They confirmed the gospel. But right in the middle of verse 6, there's this parenthetical statement that Paul makes. He says, what they were makes no difference to me, for God shows no partiality. Now, thinking through this this week, I came up to the conclusion that you could argue this verse two ways. and I'm going to do it. I'm going to argue it one way, and I'm going to argue it another (laughs) way. You could argue this verse one way that Paul says... Leadership doesn't matter. They were leaders. I don't care. God doesn't see their leadership. I'm going to ignore their leadership too. That their position in the church means nothing to me. I'm going to disobey my leaders because God sees no human anything. He shows no partiality. You could argue that. In fact, I could make a pretty good case and in my head I was doing it. You know, we have some leaders in the church and in the world that are pretty messed up. And we could just ignore leadership and say... Forget it, we're going to do whatever we want. But what does Scripture teaches about that? If you look at Romans 13, we're told that we're to be subjects to the governing authorities. Romans is the same apostle writing that writes Galatians. I don't think Paul's conflicted in his writing here. Paul says we are to submit ourselves to our governing authorities because there is no authority except from God and those being authority that exist. Have been instituted by God. And Hebrews 13, 17, bringing it from the world of simple authority down into the world of church authority, into church government, he says, Obey your leaders. In Hebrews 13, 17.
1: He says, Obey your leaders and submit to
0: them. I don't believe that Paul's argument is to ignore our leaders. In fact, I think the way that we ought to read this verse is that Paul is actually, if you see, affirming them in their leadership position. He recognizes them as leaders in the church. In verse nine, Paul calls them pillars. So he recognizes that this group of men, these three men, if there were more, he lists three, but these three guys that he's talking to are holding a position of influence within the church. He sees that, he knows that he's affirming them in that. But it's also the same group that he's challenging. You see that in verse two? I went up because of the revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seem to be pillars. Them and the pillars goes together. It's the same group in verse 2 that's in, that's in verse 9. So Paul sees that they're in a position of leadership, but what he does is he's not saying, well, because they're in leadership, they're in power. He's not just, well, you're in a position, you're in leadership, so what do you say goes? No, he is saying, okay, you're in leadership, I recognize that, but I am fully and finally in, the, in subject to God's word and to God himself. So, at any point in time when our authority or our leadership is contradicting contradicting the word of God, we need to see what the word of God says, and that's what Paul does. He takes the word of God that he has been given, and he takes it to them, and he says, "Look, this is what I'm seeing. I recognize you're a pillar in this church, but I think you've got this wrong. If we don't hold to this, so these guys, he's not enamored by these guys. Paul's not starstruck. He's not, wow, these are apostles." No, he's an apostle too He recognizes that Our positions are not the basis By which God judges And they should not be the basis By which we judge one another either We see this again in 1 Samuel 16 And when we see it in 1 Samuel 16 It's actually God speaking Directly God speaking to Samuel In 1 Samuel 16 Samuel sent to the house of Jesse To get the king to replace Saul and what does he do? Jesse brings his sons before Samuel and he sees the son Eliab, and he says surely the Lord's anointed is before him. When he came he looked on Eliab and thought surely the Lord's anointed is before him. What's he doing? He's judging him on the outward appearance that he sees. He's judging him through eyes of the if you go back to Samuel or yeah, to 1 Samuel 9, we are first introduced to Saul in this way. You know how we're introduced to Saul? This is how we meet Saul. Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than all of the people. Chapter 9, verse 2. He's tall, dark, and handsome. Perfect for the world's standards to be a king. That's how we're introduced to Saul. But what does God tell Samuel in chapter 16? God says, Do not look on his appearance, meaning Eliana. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature. Why? Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Folks, this is the exact reason the world missed Jesus the first time around. Israel is looking for a Messiah. He is. They were looking. They were looking. The world was looking for somebody to come in to overthrow Rome, to set up a kingdom, and to rule. That's what they were looking for. They weren't looking for a Messiah to come in to be beaten, to be tortured, to die, to hang on the cross, and to be buried and to three days later. That's not the Messiah Israel was looking. Why? Because they didn't have gospel eyes to see that's what they needed. So my question to us today is, how do we view people around us? Are we seeing as the world sees? Downstairs we had a discussion, how do we welcome people who are in a mess when they see us and think that all we are is perfect? How do we see them through God's eyes? Can we see them through God's eyes? Or do we look at the person as the world looks at the person? John's example from from Virginia. How do we see Sean? Do we see a dirty guy running around in dirty clothes that we don't want to get near because we might get some dirt on our shoes? Or do we see, as John saw, and as God saw, this is a guy that's got worldly problems, but he's got a problem a lot deeper. Yeah, he might be messy, he might be dirty, he might carry baggage. We all carry baggage. Or do we look at Sean and do we see, man, this is the guy that Christ died for. Yeah, he's got some issues here in life. He's lost his cell phone. Who knows what goes along with that. But deep down inside he's got a heart that needs to hear, to know that Jesus Christ died for his sins that so he can so that he could be reconciled to God. So how are we judging the world around us? Are we looking with partiality? Or are we looking through the eyes of God? We need to be praying and asking God to give us eyes to see the way that he sees. To ask him to allow us to see through gospel eyes. Listen, that song that we just sang, There's no mountains too high. There is no person that is so high that they are outside of the need of God's grace. But there's also no valley too low. There is also no one who has sunk so low that the grace of God can't reach that person. Do we believe that? Or do we have a tiered system that says, well, you're not quite high enough for me yet? So, first, we see here we have a gospel that shows no favorites. But second, we have a gospel that unites where the world divides. Galatians 2, 7 through 9. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, Perceive the grace that was given to me that gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All three of these verses have humanity captured into two different classes. That's it. Two different ethnicities. We see the circumcised and the uncircumcised in verse 7, and we see the circumcised and Gentiles in verses 8 and 9. This distinction that Paul makes is between the Jews as the circumcised. And the Greek word he uses is "ethnos." Literally, every nation but Israel. But that's the two divided lines that Paul sees. So you've got the gospel, one gospel, not a gospel. I mean, Paul's clear. The gospel three times. The gospel to the circumcised. The gospel to the uncircumcised. Three times. One gospel to the Jew. One gospel to everybody else. We are part of everybody else. This gospel answers the fundamental question that all of humanity is asking. How can I be saved? If you boil life down to, and I'm going to read a quote, but if you look at culture and society and the media that we take in, this is the question at the heart of anybody. Who is going to set the world right? We all know something's wrong. Listen to this quote. It came from a book I had to read for my last class. Everyone is looking for someone to set the world right. Thousands of years after humanity's fall in the garden, these dreams have not faded. Yearnings for a rescuer are as close as the novels on your shelf, the video discs beside your television, or the movie tickets that are crumpled in your pocket. Whether you prefer science fiction or romance, Somebody in nearly every fictional book or film is seeking a savior to set something right. He goes on to say this yearning for a savior is present in real life as well. For one person, it may take the form of a romantic longing for that perfect partner. For somebody else in the passionate conviction, is the passionate passionate conviction that if only one particular political candidate is elected, that person will restore the nation's lost glory. Still others may seek out a spiritual guide who seems to possess all the answers. We cannot escape the desire that was born in Eden, the longing for a Savior to set the world right. You see this, right? Like, I'm not, this guy's not making this up. The typical storyline through anything that Hollywood puts out is, Somebody's in a real mess, they're looking for that one person to set them free, they find that one person and everything's happening ever after. That's the storyline summed up in 10 seconds of everything that Hollywood puts out. Every book we read is nonfiction. That's fiction. That's coming from somewhere. There has to be an answer to that. C.S. Lewis said, if you find in yourself a yearning that nothing in this world can satisfy, your yearning is not of this world. The answer to that yearning is not in this world. it's not in this world. The answer to that yearning is Jesus Christ and it comes only through this one gospel. The false brothers that Paul and the apostles were fighting against wanted to add the Jewish law to this gospel. They wanted to add Jewish customs to the gospel and Paul sees that in doing this they're in direct opposition not only to the message of the gospel but they are also it also is working against the unity of its diversity that the gospel brings with it which is the wisdom of God. Listen, when we take the gospel into the world, when we take the gospel into Africa and Brazil and into all of these countries where we have missionaries, we don't change the gospel message. We adapt it to the culture because there's cultural pressures that we here in America are facing. But we don't change the message. Our fundamental message is we preach Christ crucified, the glory of God and the wisdom of God. And if you go to the book of Ephesians, Paul lays out for us some astounding gospel realities. One of them is the fact that the gospel is the making known of the mystery of God's will, which he set forth in, the, in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. You know what it is? It is to unite all things in Christ. Unity. The gospel is a gospel of unity. This passage shows that the cross was not a cosmic accident. It was always the purpose, always the plan of God. But then, if you look in Ephesians 2, we see the outworking of God's uniting in all things in Christ. You know how he did it? He broke down the dividing walls of hostility. You know how? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. You know what they were? Circumcision, law keeping, customs, and rituals. And he creates in himself one new man out of many. The cross breaks down exactly what these false teachers and these false brothers were trying to bring back in the dividing walls of hostility before the cross if you were not a Jew you were outside of the covenant of God you were not a part of the promises the promises of God Christ breaks all that down you don't have to become a Jew you don't have to become an American you don't have to become a brother in Christ member you don't have to become a baptist member you don't have to become a member of any particular church you have to place your faith in Jesus Christ. This can be summed up in the Latin phrase, e pluribus unum. Have you ever heard that before? You realize that's on the back of our pickles, and I think it's, the, it's supposed to be the motto for the United States. I say supposed to, because we're not really united right now, but that's not this message. Um, <laughs> yeah. It can be summed up in the Latin phrase, e pluribus unum. You know what it means? Out of many one. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 2, the gospel does. It makes out of many one. You see an outworking of this in Revelation 7, 9, and 10. John sees a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's not a multitude of Americans there. There's not a multitude of just Jews there. There's not a multitude of any one single person. The false gospels want to make one of many. They wanted to make a bunch of Jews. That's what they said you had to be. Gospel comes along and says, no, I'm going to take you right where you are, and I'm going to bring you into the family of God. It unites us. We are united in a common relationship with God as children of God. We are united in a common relationship with God as the people of God. We have a common union with Christ, and through the common receiving of the Holy Spirit, we have unity. And that list just goes one and one and one. I've made it for you. It's a Hogan and Malcolm Center if you want to see it. All of the ways that believers are united in Christ because of the gospel. One of the commentaries I read this past week said that an American Christian, think about this, an American Christian has far more in common with a gospel believer who lives a nomadic existence on the Mongolian plains, okay, than they do with a non-believer who lives on their street, drives a similar car, whose children go to the same school as theirs. Christianity takes absolutely no account of cultural distinctives and is never contingent on cultural similarity. It is a gospel of unity. Faith in Christ is what gets you in. That's it. No other rules, no other rights, no other customs you have to do to be welcomed into the family of God. You place your faith in Christ alone. So we've seen a gospel that shows no favorites, a gospel that unites where the world divides. And now we come to verse 10 and we see a gospel that has concern for the less fortunate. Verse 10, Paul writes, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. If you remember, this was the reason Paul was there in the first place. He's taking an offering to the, to the brothers in Jerusalem who were suffering because of this famine. They were poor. They needed help. To so the churches that could, they gave, and he took this up to them. This is the one common thread that I think should be through the entire gospel if we get nothing else out of this. We have been blessed beyond measure in Christ. We are not living for the pleasures and the glories of this world. We are living for the pleasures and the glories of heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes the following statement. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. A few verses later, Jesus says, when you give to the needy, Matthew 6, 2 and 6, and 6, 3. When Jesus is expecting believers to be doing this, if you go back to Acts, we see that the church, this is Acts 2, 40, 45, this is just after the day of the Pentecost. So this is a young church that may even not be much more than a week old. We see these members selling their possessions and helping one another. We see them distributing their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any need. Again in Acts 4 we see people just selling possessions and giving it to the church. So we see this attitude of generosity that flows from the gospel inside the church and then we see it outside the church. Matthew 19, Jesus confronts the rich young ruler and says, if he were to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the Lord and you will have treasures in heaven. Not that he could earn his salvation but he was attacking a hard issue with this man are we so hung up on the treasures that we have in this world that we can't let go of them or are we willing to give our money to the poor are we willing to help that family in need are we willing to help that individual in need when you see those guys begging along the corner I know there's a lot of scams going on I'm not saying just Chuck your money at everybody. But what I am saying is, do you have a heart, do we have a heart for the hurting of this world? Do we have a heart for the poor and for the afflicted? Or do we just have a gospel that says, hey, I'm in heaven and now God's gonna Bless me with all the blessings of this world. In Luke 12, 22 through 34, which is the end of the teaching of Jesus talking about us being anxious, at the very end of the discourse, Jesus closes with these words. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with, a, with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no loss destroys. For where your treasure is there, your heart will also be. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Back in Ephesians 1, Paul says that we have been blessed in the heavenly realm in every spiritual blessing. There is a kingdom waiting for us as believers in Christ that no eye has seen and no ear has heard, that which God has prepared for those who want to enjoy in it. And it is his pleasure. He enjoys giving this to his people. And at the end of his speaking on anxiety, he says... What don't you trust about what I've given you? He's talked about the birds in the air, he's talked about the flowers, he's talked about how none of his creatures scurry around and they trust God. We read a story last night about that in our children's Bible. Have you ever seen a bird pushing a grocery cart? That came right out of the children's Bible. But I mean, they're not. They get up, they do their thing, their God in heaven provides their needs. Do we have that same level of faith? Does our gospel put us there? The gospel that we believe, do we believe that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus? Or are we so wrapped up in the things of this world and the uncertainties of what's going to come tomorrow that we just suck everything away in our bank account? 401 is not quite big enough, so I'm going to stick just a little bit more in each one. I can't tell you to do. I can't tell you what to do with your life. I can't. I can't tell you that. I can take you to the Word of God, and I can show you what the Word of God says about what the gospel means to our outlook on the things of this world. I can show you what the gospel means to the outlook of the people of this world. I can tell you what the gospel means to the unity that we have in Christ. And how we should never divide ourselves. I know the church is divided right now and like crazy all over the world. That's the unfortunate mishap that we have. So, what's the gospel that you believe today? The gospel that you believe is to show no partiality? Does it judge the world through the lenses of God? Does it see people as image bearers of the one and only God in heaven? as people who are in desperate need of a Savior just like you are? Or do you see as man sees? Is your gospel one that unites? Is your gospel when you share it one that says Christ died for your sins and that's all you need to know? Or is your gospel one that says Christ died for your sins but you need to do clean this up a you need to figure out how to get your checkbooks balanced, or how to fix your relationships first, or how to look like me, dress like me, talk like me, act like me. Or is your gospel one that unites everything in Christ? And is your gospel the gospel? That has a burden for the poor. A burden for those less fortunate than us. Through fault of their own or no fault of their own, it doesn't matter. So my challenge to you today is to look at your gospel that you believe. And I know we can sit here and we can say, yes, I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hope that's true for you. But functionally speaking, is that the gospel that you believe? Is that the gospel that you walk around with daily in your hearts and in your minds? And if not, I hope and I pray that the Lord would reveal to you something throughout this week. That the word of God would expose your heart to say, look, you know the gospel but you're not living by it. You are not judging the world the way I judge the world. You're not seeing the lost and the hurt and the broken because you're seeing the dirty, the less fortunate. The people who don't look like me. Father, I was challenged this week, the last couple of days, preparing this, just wanting you to show me these areas where in my mind I have the gospel, but in my heart I don't have to. I'm not I'm not living the gospel out of the way you've called me now. Father, I was challenged to see. Am I showing partiality? Am I Am I harboring feelings in my heart where I'm I'm judging people based on their outward appearances? And Father, then I checked my gospel to make sure that my gospel was not one that said you have to look like me, you have to believe like me. If you're not right with me on this point of doctrine or that point of doctrine, you're wrong. Father, is my gospel, is our gospel a gospel that unites in Christ and in Christ alone? Or is it one that on the front end divides us? Father, it's my prayer as we go throughout this week that you would reveal even more to myself, even more to the hearts of the hearers that are hearing this message and we would we would be united in Christ and that would be enough. Father, that we would be a church that seeks to grow up into the unity of the faith that we have been given. Father, that people can come in and they can believe differently than we do. But that we can show them love and we can show them acceptance. Father, as we meet other believers in the streets who may worship a little bit differently than we do, who may do things that we're not accustomed to doing, that we can see that The areas that we are united in are so far in number than the areas that we're divided. Father, it's my prayer that as we read through that list this week, that we can see everything that we have in common with our brothers and sisters spread across this globe. And Father, I pray that it ignites within us a passion and a desire and a longing for that day in Revelation where we will all gather around the throne. A multitude of people from every nation, from every tribe, from every kingdom, from every country, from every ethnic group, from every denomination, from every faith background. Now we would be worshiping the one God who sits on the throne and the Lamb that was sacrificed for our sins. Father, be with us as we leave this place. Be with us as we go back into our world. Be with us as we go back into our places of employment. And Father, made this one true gospel that shows no favorites, that unites where the world divides, and that has a concern for the poor, would be bearing itself out in our day to day relationships. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay.